I'm continuing my series I started last Sunday through the book of Corinthians, the book of Corinthians, and I invite you to pull out those message notes this morning, and I understand that we don't have an overhead. Uh, Dawn Kodish is on vacation, and she did not get a chance to do that, but that's okay. We'll go old school this morning, and you can just follow along in your message notes, and if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's read scripture together. I'll read along and you just follow. Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food. For you are not ready for it, and indeed you're still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Paulus, are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labors. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. And, and I'd like to pray one more time. Lord, I'm asking this morning... Uh, as, as uh, I share your word, that you would help me to share it, apply it to our lives this August of 2014. In Jesus' name we pray again. Amen. I, I like this story. You may have heard it before. I'm not sure. But one day, a little girl came to her mommy. And she said, Mommy, where did we come from? And her mommy said, Well, you see, there was... Adam and Eve, God created Adam and Eve, and they had children, and they had grandchildren, and so on and so forth. She went to her daddy, and she said, Daddy, where did we come from? And he said, well, you see, honey, we came from apes, and we came from monkeys. She went back to her mommy, and she said, what's going on, mommy? You said that we came from God, and Adam and Eve, and so on and so forth, but daddy said that we evolved from monkeys and apes. And her mommy responded, well, that's easy, honey. You see, your daddy was talking about his side of the family, and I was talking about my side of the family. Ah, that's a silly word, isn't it? Most, 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 if not all of us, as biblical Christians, do not believe in evolution. We do not believe in evolution and that we evolved from monkeys and apes. But in our treatment of others, you would have to agree at certain times that apes and monkeys treat one another better than human beings at times. In the last few years, I've noticed wherever I've gone, all kinds of different communities, large, small, rural, or urban, 
all kinds of different churches, all kinds of different churches, mainline churches, evangelical churches, charismatic churches. I've talked with pastors of all kinds of different denominations and all kinds of different stripes. There is often in our world today a lack of civility, a lack of civility, a lack of being able to get along with other people who are different, a little different, are a lot different in their outlooks and perspectives on life. And it hurts, as we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it hurts the gospel of Jesus Christ. It hurts the witness of the church. I believe as of today, the most pressing problems for Christians, most of us don't need more doctrine. Most of us know theology backwards and forwards. Most of us know what the Bible says. The most pressing problems is to put into practice how to treat one another, how to disagree agreeably, how to forgive, how to go the extra mile, how to love people that are often different and have different perspectives and ideas than we do. And that's the basis that we looked at last week in the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, and what we saw in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, well, let me set the scene. Let me set the scene for us this morning. The Apostle Paul established the, the Corinth church sometime in 50 A.D. He visited the Corinth church, which is in modern-day Greece today. He preached as a part-time tent maker. And for 18 months, he established the Christian church there. He won a number of people to Christ. And these were happy and fulfilling days for the Apostle Paul. Many had come again to know Christ during his ministry. But as soon as he left, things began to deteriorate in the church. And he began to write letters to them. And we know that he wrote several of those letters. And we have at least two of them in what we call First and Second Corinthians, primarily dealing with relationships in the church that had gone bad. And humanly speaking, it's no wonder that things went bad. These people in the Corinthian church came from such diverse backgrounds. As I said last week, you had the Orthodox Jewish people with their propensity toward legalism and the law. And they came out of that. And then you had other people who had so-called pagan Gentile backgrounds with their worship of idols and with their sexual debauchery and all of their practices and all the things that they were involved in before they became Christian people. As I said last week, it would be like trying to merge the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, with the NRA, the National Rifleman Association. Can you imagine such diversity, such uh, groups of individuals, such people with so many different perspectives and the way they looked at things and the way they acted and the way they reacted to things. And not on top of that, you had many different individuals of socio-economic background. You had rich people, poor people, masters, slaves. And all of these people had different perspectives and experiences. And it's really no wonder, humanly speaking, that they begin to have problems with one another. Now, last week in chapter 1, just to review just a little bit, Paul, in chapter 1, verse 10, begins by saying, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. In essence, I plead with you. I beseech you. Not because I'm your pastor. Not because I'm the founder of this church. Not because I'm sort of some sort of apostle. But I plead with you. And he uses that familiar family term as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
His tone is one of tenderness. I plead with you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, would you focus on the things that cause unity? Would you focus on the things, the essential things, Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and would you do away with the non-essential things that cause disunity? The whole context of 1 Corinthians is relationships. Would you be willing to go the extra mile with someone who offends you? Would you be able to overlook an offense? Would you be willing to forgive somebody? Would you be willing to show grace and tender mercies to individuals who are so different and who have different opinions than you do? Would you be willing to do these things? To agree, to choose to disagree agreeably. And this is what he says. In fact, as you know, it reaches a crescendo in verse, uh, excuse me, in chapter 13, where he basically says, uh, love is this, love does not, love is, love does not. And if you can have all of these spiritual gifts, and you can have faith to remove mountains, but if you don't have love, it is worth nothing. Now this is um, all review of chapter 1. And then he turns a corner in chapter 3. But I want to share a story with you. Uh, years ago, I think it was in one of uh, Chuck Swindoll's books, but I'm not positive. But years ago, here's a story. I read of two unmarried sisters, two unmarried sisters who lived together, but because of an unresolved disagreement over an insignificant issue, they stopped speaking to each other. And since they were unable or unwilling to move out of their small house, they continued to eat in the same rooms, eat at the same tables, use the same appliances, and sleep in the same room all separately without one word. In fact, a chalk line, this is a true story, a chalk line divided the sleeping area into two halves, separating doorways as well as fireplaces. So each could come and go, each could cook and eat, sew and read without ever stepping over into the other sister's territory. Through the black of the night, each could hear the deep breathing of the other, but because they were unwilling or unable, either one of them, to take a step to, toward forgiveness, they coexisted in grinding silence for years. You say, I don't understand that. How can individuals who call themselves Christians, family members, the family of God, exist that way? And yet it happens every day, unfortunately. Every day you hear of these kinds of stories, even among sisters. First Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3. We turn a corner, now we're in chapter 3. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, the problem. First of all, the problem. Look at verse 1 with me. There's that family term, familiar term. He says, brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, Paul says, I started where you're at, like newborn babies. I didn't force any solid foods down your throat. We understand that. I didn't force any solid foods down your throat because I, I knew that you weren't ready for it. Now, church, there's nothing wrong with feeding milk to babies, right? 
we would expect it. Unless a baby has an allergy of some kind, we expect them not to eat solid foods for the first six, seven, eight months, whatever it is, right? We would feed them milk, and it's a, it, it goes right along. We would expect it. Even today, even today, after 20 centuries of Christian teaching, we would not expect a baby Christian to know uh, and to be able to digest uh, the doc- all the doctrines of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of salvation, and to know all the ology, like cardiology, pneumonology, sociology, eschatology. We wouldn't expect a baby Christian to know all of these things. That's what he's saying here. You weren't ready for it. I couldn't give it to you. I couldn't give you solid food. I gave you baby food. However, however, the context tells us that we do and we should expect baby Christians to understand the basic commandment of loving God with all your heart, body, mind, and soul, and loving your neighbor as yourself. We would expect, even if they are immature as far as their maturity level in the Lord, that they at least would be able to know the basics of how to treat one another and how to get along with other people. And this is, again, the backdrop for 1 Corinthians uh, here in chapter 3 and chapter 1 and even chapter 2. Now, the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, you don't need more doctrine. You don't, know, you don't need more theology. You don't need, you don't need to be able to describe TULIP, uh, the acronym TULIP, in great detail. Why? Why is this? Because in verse 2 and 3, notice, brothers, verse 1, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Verse 2, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it yet. Indeed, you are still not ready. Verse 3, you are, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Now, in verses 1 through 3, the word worldly is used in the NIV three times. In the King James Version, it is used four times, the word, the word worldly. And uh, he says, you're still worldly. And the word, word worldly is translated as carnal or fleshly. In, es- in essence, acting in a sinful way. You say, Pastor Ron, specifically, wh- how were they acting in a sinful way? Well, they were quarreling and they were arguing and there were jealousies over and backbiting and gossiping and lack of forgiveness, a stirring up of the dissension over church leadership. Over church leadership. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. When one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulus, are you not mere men acting context in a worldly way? So we, we have these people, we talked a little bit about this last week, who were saying, well, Paul's my man, he's my leader, and another person was saying, well, Paulus is my man, and he's my leader. Unfortunately, I believe that they were using human external evaluations to evaluate their spiritual leaders. Pastor Harold, he's a great leader in essence. I'm reading in between the lines. Uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think the context can call for this. Pastor Harold, he's a great leader because he looks good, because he speaks well, because he's tall, and because he's handsome, and because he comes from the right family. No, no, no. Pastor Tom is my leader because he dresses like us. He has this link. He even spends time with us over a cup 
of coffee. And they were using all of these external evaluations, you might want to say, for their leaders. And none of these things have to do with the pastoral leadership and the, the descriptions of maturity found specifically in Timothy and Titus and elsewhere in Scripture. You see, in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, the arguing and the quarreling and the jealousies and the disunity is over church leadership. But, but, the quarreling and arguing could be over other things. The color of the carpet in the sanctuary have been a point of contention for some churches I've been familiar with. Whether or not we have an organ or a piano or an absence of one have been the contention of some people and some churches that I'm familiar with. Whether or not we have uh, pews versus cheers have been a point of contention from some churches I'm familiar with. Whether or not there are drums and the drums are protected and they have some sort of barrier around them or whether they're open or not have been the point of contention with some churches that I'm familiar with. And the unfortunate thing is, is that these are so-called non-essentials. They're non-essentials. They're focusing on the wrong thing. And when you begin to focus on the non-essentials, there is disunity and dissension. And as I said last week, when you have Christians stirring up dissension and we have Christians mad at one another and causing disunity, it is a sin. It's a sin. And God's Holy Spirit is grieved by it and quenched by it. So argumentative about these so-called non-essentials that they cannot disagree agreeably and accept uh, one another and the differences of opinions of other people. Well, what's the solution? What's the solution? Well, what I want to do right now is I, I want to give you seven uh, keys, I think, that will help resolve conflict. If you ever are involved in conflict with another Christian, uh, these are seven steps to, to help resolve conflict, to disagree agreeably. But let me preface, let me preface uh, these steps to conflict resolution by saying this. Let me say this. Did you know that Jesus' love and his unconditional love that he has for us through Jesus Christ must be uh, the preeminent thing, must be the foundation for all conflict resolution? In other words, we want to make sure that we love other people in an unconditional way, that we go the extra mile, that we're willing to be able to give, that we're willing to be able to show mercy to people, that how we resolve the conflict is just as important and the process as the end result. We have to have the foundation for that. In fact, I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul states it again in verses 5 through 8. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom God came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. One purpose. 
And that's showing God's grace and tender mercies and love to people who are often different and at odds with us and who have different beliefs. If we're going to reach, win, if we're going to win people to Jesus Christ, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And when we're involved with conflict with other people, we have to let them know, hey, brother, sister, I might disagree with you, but I love you. I genuinely love you. I genuinely care for you. I don't care if you disagree with me. I don't care if you don't really like me. I'm still going to show love to you. This is the foundational thing. This is the ultimate purpose. To share, to receive God's love found through Jesus Christ and to be able to share that with other people. Those people who disagree with us, even. Well, um... Um, so what's the solution? Well, notice in your outline this morning, I've, I've listed um, seven, uh, as I said, steps to resolve conflict, to disagree uh, agreeably. Um, and I, I want to begin by saying that, um, well, let, let, me just, let me just go on what, what I'm talking about here kind of lost my place in my notes here, and I'm, I'm getting back to it here. You see, um, often people say, well, I'll love you if only you love me. I'll love you if we can um, be on the same page as far as all of our politics are concerned. Uh, I'll, I'll love you as long as you're a Republican. Uh, I'll love you as long as you're independent. I'll love you as long as you're a Democrat. Uh, as long as you vote the way that I want you to vote, as long as my cultural, social, economic, political world is like yours. Uh, The Bible says, no, we're to love one another unconditionally, whether or not a person has good morals or no morals. Whether they have good morals or no morals. Uh, Whether or not people are clean and sober, are strung out, are addicted. Right? clean, are sober, are strung out, are addicted, we're to love people unconditionally. We're to love people whether they're single, are married, are living together. We're to love people unconditionally. It's God's Spirit that convicts people of their sins. And the first thing that we're supposed to do is love people unconditionally. Whether or not they're Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, Charismatic, we're to love people unconditionally. And we're to show grace to all people, love to all people, especially to the brothers and sisters in the church. This is what the Bible says. Well, um, I don't like the way they dress. Well, I'd rather them be here in our church than in a bar someplace the way they're dressed. Well, I don't like the way they talk. Well, I'd rather hear a cuss word or two, and I'd rather see butts outside of our church of people smoking than people to go elsewhere. Where else, where else are they going to hear the gospel of love, the gospel of truth? Where else are they going to hear about Christ's unconditional love? Where else? You know, life is way too short. Life is way too difficult to, to not have love and unconditional love for people that are even a lot different, or, or, or different than we are. You know, um, we're all sinners and we're saved by God's grace. We're all sinners and we're saved by God's grace. Here's a poem uh, that I heard. Uh, 
I was shocked and bewildered and confused when I entered heaven's door. Not by the beauty, nor the lights, or its decor. It was the people in heaven that made me sputter and gasp. The sinners, the cheaters, and the liars, and the trash. There stood the kid from second grade that stole my lunch money twice. Next to him was a neighbor who never said anything nice. Albert, who I thought would be rotting in hell, was sitting on cloud nine doing quite well. I asked Jesus, what's the deal? I'd love to hear your take. How did all these sinners get up here? Must have been a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Please give me a clue. He said, it's because they're all in shock. They never thought they'd be seeing you. Again, where would we be without God's unconditional love and, and His tender mercies? So that has to be the foundation. That has to be the, the ultimate purpose and, and, and of experiencing God's love and sharing God's love through Christ. That said, that said, uh, how, how do you disagree agreeably? How do you how do you disagree agreeably? How do you resolve a conflict in a Christian way? Well, number one, realize that conflict is inevitable. Realize that conflict is inevitable. Now, we don't seek out, we shouldn't seek after conflict, and we shouldn't be one of those people that just love conflict. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, you want to stay away from those kind of people. We don't seek conflict, and we're not trying to stir up conflict, and we're not trying to get people mad at one another over just silly, trivial things. But there will, be, there will come a time where you will disagree with someone about something. And understand, as you process it through, you may not be able to come eye to eye with that person, and you may not be able to uh, you know, uh, have the same resolution as you would want them to have it. You may not be able to, but recognize that conflict is inevitable. We don't seek after it, but neither should we avoid it at all costs. So we are, we are entitled to our opinions, and, uh, and, 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 and you should be able to express your opinions. Number two, be honest with your feelings. Be honest with your feelings. We're told in Ephesians 4.25 to speak the truth in love and to put off falsehood. Speak the truth in love and to put off falsehood. Come on, Pastor Ron. If I really told my boss how I felt, I might get fired. Or someone might say, if I really told my husband how I really felt about all the time that he spends with the guys, he might withdraw even more. On and on we go thinking, we're really keeping the peace, explaining why we can't tell the truth. So just let them have it. No. <laughs> no. You've you got to use tact. And timing is important. Timing is important. You have to use tact. Now, there are some things that we can overlook, and we should. And there are some things that we can't. And we can't. Um, I, I, I believe that you should kind of sit on something for a little bit and digest it and chew it over a little bit. And if it still doesn't set well, then go to the person. And we're going to be talking about how we should go to that person. But we need to use tact. Now, um, again, good timing is important. Um, 
it probably is not good timing to talk with what you don't like about a pastor or about a layperson on Sunday morning in the sanctuary. I would wait a little bit, maybe that afternoon or a next day. It's just, it just is, that's just not the right timing, typically. Uh, one of my sons had a football coach, and I'll never forget that, what that football coach said. He said, parents, if you've got to talk to me and you want to talk to me about anything with your kids, please don't talk to me right after the football game. I don't think I'm going to be that receptive to your criticism. But any other day, I'll hear you out. So timing is often important. Number three. You've got to identify the real obstacle before you blurt out, Hey, buddy, I've got a problem with you. You identify the real obstacle. Take the time to determine, again, the real issue. Is it hurt feelings? Do you feel neglected or misunderstood? Identify them. Talk to the Lord about them. And, uh, and again, ask yourself, are you, do you have realistic expectations? Okay, number four. You've got to arrange to meet with the person face-to-face. Arrange to meet with the person face-to-face. Don't go to another person. Don't go to another person. Don't go to a group of people. Go to the person that you're having conflict or disagreement with. Go to them face to face. This is what the Bible says in Matthew 18:15. Notice in your message notes, Jesus said, meet with that person in private. Private. Not out here in the vestibule area. That's a public place. Not here in the sanctuary. It's usually, unless you get them in a the corner someplace. But private. Go to a room. Go to their house. Get away in a restaurant, in a corner someplace, but meet with them in private. Um, uh, number five, when you meet with someone, when you meet with someone, affirm the relationship before you open up the agenda. Affirm the relationship before you open up the agenda. Now, if you're meeting with your spouse, you could say, look, honey, I, I love you. I want our marriage to be all that it can be, and I appreciate you for these things. You're affirming them. But I need to talk to you about this. So you need to um, affirm the relationship. And then number six, you want to make observations rather than accusations. You want to make observations rather than accusations. Now, human beings are like animals, and that is when they are cornered and attacked, they will attack and strike back. You have to understand that. So you want to make observations rather than accusations. Uh, don't throw verbal punches. Say, look, I'm feeling hurt by some things you said. Uh, can we talk about it? And then number seven. I know I'm going through this really quick here, and I apologize for that, but I want to get on. Finally, be willing to listen to the other person's perspective. Be willing to listen to the other person's perspective because typically they'll have another perspective. Did you know that if you wait and set on something then often you will, the Lord will help you sort through it and you don't have to, to go talk to the person. Often. But if you fly off the handle and you give a knee-jerk reaction, uh, that might not be the best situation. So you want to wait a little bit, pray about it, think about what you're going to say, make these observations rather than accusations, and be willing to listen to the other person's perspective. When you go to the person and you talk to them, sometimes you get a whole different perspective. Because we're such bad about being able to identify nonverbal and verbal and being able to discern what really is happening and what's really going on. Some of us have our 
antennas out the whole time and we're kind of, kind of you know, getting feedback or whatever. And unless we go to the person and talk to them, and we may not get clarification. Oh, no, that's not what I meant at all. Or I didn't mean to say that. Or I didn't mean it that way. We get, you know, that's... And, and so we just... If, if, if it bothers you and you're stewing about it, go to them and at least get their perspective. And maybe they'll give you perspective as well. I remember reading years ago. A lady bought a package of cookies at, at the airport... And she was waiting for her airplane. And she was waiting to board an uh, airplane to Chicago. When all of a sudden, and she set her purse on a common table. And when all of a sudden the guy next to her opened up a package of cookies. And she couldn't believe it. It was her cookies. And he opened it up and he took a bite of one of the cookies. And she was so flabbergasted, she didn't know what to do, and she, she didn't want to yell at the guy, so she, she grabbed the cookie, and she began to eat, the, eat a cookie. And then he, then he grabbed another cookie, and it made her even more mad. And she was just stewing right at, at this particular point. And then he had the audacity to take the last cookie, break it in half, and give it to her. True story. Still fuming, sometime later... When her flight was announced, the woman opened up her handbag to get her ticket, and to her shock and to her embarrassment, she found her unopened cookies in her bag. How wrong, how wrong, how wrong assumptions can be. How wrong, how wrong, how wrong assumptions can be. And sometimes you just need to sit down with a person and say, is this what you meant? Is this what you mean? And they'll say, no, it's not what I mean. And you get some sort of resolution that way. Don't assume anything. Don't assume anything. Go to the person and resolve it right away. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for your tender mercies and for your grace that you bestowed upon us. And we know that we're saved by your grace. We're all sinners saved by your mercies. Thank you for that. Thank you for your grace that you bestowed upon us. Lord Jesus, you said in your word that we're to love even our enemies. You said to turn the other cheek. You said to forgive. You said to go at the extra mile. Help us to do so. And at times, for some of us, help us not to be able to spout off our opinion without being asked for it. Um, just put a Discipline on our mouth, Lord. Some things need to be shared and other things don't need to be shared. So give us the discipline and the wisdom to know the difference between the two. And when people disagree with us, to disagree agreeably. Bottom line, to love them unconditionally like you 
loved us, Lord. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. If I could have our ushers come forward at this time to receive our tithes and offering. Bless this offering. Thank you for it. In Christ's name again we pray, Lord. Amen. There was a young couple with a baby toddler at a restaurant. And often like little toddlers do, he wanted out of his high chair. And so they let him out of the high chair and he was standing up between this couple in this booth. And this little boy was looking all around. Well, about that time, in walked a bum. A man that was obviously off the streets, disheveled, look about him shuffled clothes, uh, wrinkled clothes, uh, a full beard that had not been shaved in a long time, dirty looking, and he sat at the counter. And the little toddler and the man made eye contact, and they began to play with one another. You know how often little toddlers will play with someone who plays with them. And so he began to give the toddler attention. He played peekaboo and he would make funny faces at the little boy, and the little boy was being entertained this whole time. Now the mother, especially, and the father, looked over at the bum, and um, they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed. Here's this man with this, obviously, a street person off the street, and they didn't really know what to do, so they tried to get the toddler to sit down in between them, but he wouldn't have anything to do with it. Finally, they got done with their breakfast. And as they were walking out, the little toddler kept looking at the man, and this bum, this disheveled, homeless type of looking person, kept looking at him. And as they passed one another, the toddler reached his arms out to this man. And this man reached his arms out toward the toddler. And he embraced him and hugged on him and loved him a little bit. And the toddler put his head on the bum's shoulder and actually kissed him on the cheek. The mother and the father got their little boy, said a few words to the man, and as they were walking out, 
the young mother got tears in her eyes and said, God, please forgive me. My little boy saw beyond all the externals, saw beyond the deceitful look, saw beyond the man who was dressed like a bum, and saw the person that God made him to be. We're children of God. Whether people respond to God's tender mercies or not, we're all children of God in the sense that God created us and He loves all of humanity. And as His people, He wants us to love people. Whether they look like us or they don't look like us, whether they dress like us or don't dress like us, whether or not they vote like us or don't vote like us, whether or not... um, All these things. Would you stand with me?